Clubhouse Conversations, bringing you thought-provoking discussions from the documentary world. Welcome to Doghouse Conversations. My name is Carol Nara. I'm delighted to have with me Vanessa Engel, easily one of the most talented documentary makers working in the UK today. With 60 films under her belt, she's also one of the most prolific. Vanessa has made a number of her films available for us to watch online. Please see the podcast notes for links. Welcome, Vanessa. Hello. <laughs> Having spent so many hours watching you uh, skillfully interview contributors, I'm slightly bricking it. <laughs> Do you have some advice for me? Um, be direct. Let's get to it then. How's life in lockdown been treating you? Well, I think I've been very lucky and I've had gainful employment. So I've been editing. I just, um, I just picked a lot of my most recent film on Friday. So I've been, in, I've been editing the, uh, the edit started on the first week of lockdown and it's carried on right until now. So I think I, think I was lucky to be employed. I think um, maybe not so lucky in the sense that editing via Zoom is really hard. Yeah, absolutely. But boy, that timing for you, if you just just gone into the edit is rather fortunate compared to many who had to stop things right as they were going. Totally. So what we're going to do today is is uh, look a little bit through your career and listen to some clips. Um, you're going to make a bunch of your films available on on uh, Vimeo and we're going to put those links and notes on the website. So I hope people will be enjoying these films, which you're able to see. Um, thanks to you uh, making them available. So what I'd like to do, we don't have time because you've made 60 films in 32 years <laughs> to go over every film. So I'm going to pick and choose a few with some clips. Um, I would like you to start talking, uh, start by telling me a little bit about what your years initially at the BBC making arts programs were like and how they uh, prepared you for what it was like when you turned your lens to other non-arts topics? Um, well, I think when I started at the BBC, arts was um, the sort of favourite child in terms of genres at the time. And um, and the various, channel, various bosses I had who went on to become channel controllers, they, they all came from arts. People like uh, Michael Jackson, Roly Keating, Janice Hadlow, they were all these amazing people. Um, who were all in arts and specifically where I started was The Late Show, which was this nightly um, arts magazine programme. So I think I was lucky on two counts. There was, I had an there was an unbelievably talented cohort of people, a big group of people, many of whom have gone on to do amazing things. There are people like Mary Harron, Paul Greengrass, Pavel Pavlikovsky, James Marsh, Annan Tucker, Sharon Maguire. I mean, it was an amazing cohort of people. Um, and um, and it was a very it, so it was and it was a very competitive environment and um, a very creative environment and I think also what was particularly lucky about it for me was that beginning in a, on a magazine program like that I was one of the reasons I've made quite so many films is that in the very first part of my career a lot of them were short films and so you cut your teeth you know making fast turnaround short films you know you'd have three four weeks to make a five minute film an eight minute film an 11 minute film and you'd be doing that constantly year on year on year um and so it's it's incredibly good training and um those films were all very different some of them had drama in them some of them had little bits of observational filming a lot of them had interviews a lot of them were extremely stylized if you look back at the at television arts television in the late 80s early 90s it was 
um, far more experimental and uh, I would also say far more sort of intellectually curious um, than broadcasting today. So that's where I began with a license really to um, really push the boat out in all sorts of um, very exciting ways. Well, and that is uh, rather a wonderful way to begin what has been a really rich career in making films. And you went on from that to make uh, several series of, of trilogies about different topics, all of which seem rather close to your heart. <laughs> Lefties, women, and Jews. How did, how did these series come about? Um, I suppose I, I did a series, I did a series called Brit Art, which launched BBC Four. And then off the back of that, I did a series called Art in the 60s, which was the first series where I used my own voice. And actually that came about, um, that came about because the lovely actor who was a friend of mine who I'd used to do the voiceover in Brit Art had gone away to, um, to Los Angeles to try and make his fortune. And when I called him to do the voiceover for Art in the 60s, I got the foreign ringtone and he'd gone. So it, it really wasn't about me uh, in a sort of egomaniacal way, thinking that I wanted to be um, in, you know, I wanted to foreground myself. It was just a, one of those sort of accidental things. Um, and after, so Art in the 60s was a very, very fun series to make. Um, and off the back of that, I think at that point, I think it was probably a lot, there was a lot of these, a lot of times throughout my career, I feel like I'm sort of driving along a motorway and something happens in the industry that means I have to change lanes. And I think that, uh, and I've changed lanes so many times, I don't even know what lane I'm in now, but um, the, I think I had to change lanes at that point because I think the little arts moment that I'd been in suddenly came to an end. Um, and arts programs became, to me, less interesting and less experimental and became more sort of a bit more sort of like coffee table books, a big series about, you know, glossy series about um, the Renaissance or, or Venice or, you know, but not the kind of things, the much quirkier things I'd been doing. Um, and so I, I thought I would sort of dig my way out of that cell and see what was in the, well, I was trying to dig my way out of the, altogether but um uh, anyway i dug my way out and found myself in documentaries and um and started pitching these started making these series that were extremely personal um and i suppose at that time in a funny way although i was still very young i felt like all through my career i've always felt like it was all coming to an end and it was all it, it, we were at an apocalyptic moment in the industry which it has constantly felt like throughout the last <laughs> years so i sort of thought it was all over um and so in this sort of act of what i thought was sort of last ditch desperation i pitched lefties and made th those three films um in a spirit of thinking well i might as well just absolutely go for it because this is probably the last thing I'll ever do. So that was decades ago. <laughs> but, um, and they were very, they, those lefties, Jews, women, even money, they were all, uh, they were all very personal. And I suppose what I should say is I, from the age of about 30 to the age of about 40, I was in therapy. And so I, I, I chose topics that were on my mind and I suppose these 
films were, all of those series were a kind of therapy for me and that they were issues that were weighing on me quite heavily and that I felt I needed to address. And having, having addressed them each time, uh, I felt much lighter. Well, I want to give an example of, a, of your role in uh, the films. And it's amazing that you describe it as being sort of a happy accident, the fact that you came to voice your films, because that, of course, now is a Vanessa Engel film with your voice and your, your persona are central to it. So this is a clip from um, the third episode of Lefties. And it's about the, the very brief life of the leftist tabloid news on Sunday. Um, and this features Alan Haling, who people in the documentary world will know of from Channel 4 and BBC and is head of Renegade Pictures. And uh, let's, let's listen to the clip and then have a, have a talk about it. Best-selling novelist Val McDermott was an experienced tabloid journalist at the time. She applied for the job of news editor. I do think that one of the mistakes that News on Sunday made at several points in the editorial appointment process was to make decisions based on politics rather than ability. And I know that sounds like sour grapes, but um, you know I had far more practical experience than Colton Lee, who was appointed as news editor, who had never worked for a national newspaper. But you know, he was black, and we didn't have very many black people in editorial. So I think that was something that informed the decision, you know, white lesbian, black man, tough call. Do you think you did have the experience to run a, as you say, a frantic national news desk from start-up? Um, did I have the experience? I would say, did I have the experience to run a frantic news desk? I would say, in a conventional sense, no. But given that my whole journalistics experience had been about looking at the news um, and reporting you know, news in a very different way, um, reporting news stories or covering news stories from a perspective that was not the norm, I was probably more experienced than most of the other people working on the paper, actually. Everybody seemed to end up with a job they hadn't done before. Was there some notion that if you want to do something in a different way, it's a good idea to put people in posts who haven't done it before? No, not at all. I, in fact, I think that's kind of um, a bit unfair. Actually, where people had to have a particular knowledge base, I think they had a particular knowledge base. I was head of personnel and equal opportunities. And had you done that job anywhere before? No. Had you ever been... Um, foreign editor on a national paper before? I'd never been foreign editor of any national newspaper. Did you have any experience of working on a tabloid? No, I'd never worked on a national tabloid. Had you ever worked on a tabloid before? No. And had you ever worked in personnel before? No. Had you ever been editor-in-chief of a national newspaper? No. Had you ever been sales director on a national newspaper? Never. Had you been the editor of a national newspaper before? Um, no. You said you knew how to do spreadsheets, but had you, you'd never actually worked within a company man looking after finances of a company before in that way? No. So you'd never had a job in computing before? No. Had you actually had a job in marketing ever before? No, but again, um, <laughs> it's the sort of skill you pick up. You became the chief executive? 
I became the chief executive. Was that a job you'd ever done before? No. It's a cheeky clip, Vanessa. It is cheeky. Do you think I'm mean? I hope I'm not mean. Alan Hailing is a very lovely man. He looked very taken aback by it. <laughs> he should know. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I just, um, I wanted to play that clip because it, it is mischievous, but it also shows a, an inordinate amount of preparation that you must have done because you've lined up all of these interviews, you've gotten these people on board. What I didn't mention and is not in that clip for time reasons is you also have got them all reading out bits of the manifesto for this very, very short-lived newspaper. And, um, and Where then I also you... worked, actually, by the way, Carol, I should say that. Oh, I didn't realize that. And then you had clearly had this question going into each interview. So can you talk me through that a little bit and, and about what it's like to prepare for these interviews? Uh, yeah, I think um, preparation is key for me in what I do. So I, it normally takes me, um, I know this sounds probably a bit bonkers, but for any interview that I do, it normally takes me a day or certainly half a day at the very least to prepare for an interview. Um, and I'm thinking very, very hard about what I'm trying to, what I need from that interview. And I'm thinking very hard about what I need from that interview and how that might intercut with other interviews. And um, sometimes, not all my films, in quite a few of my films, I have asked the same, asked everybody or a lot of people the same question with a view to being able to um, accumulate their answers in a montage. So. There is um, there is a lot of preparation. I mean, obviously, sometimes I interview people who I, I know nothing about and I've just, uh, some, you know, we've just banged on a door and somebody comes to the door and I interview them on the spot. Um, and there's a joy to a spontaneous interview as well. Um, don't get me wrong. Um, and those often produce amazing things. Um, so I'm not averse to that. But if, if you're planning a huge three-part series and you've had to map the narrative across three films, you know, you, you, do, have to, you do have to know where you're going um, and, and what the story is that you're telling. Um, and it does involve many hours of preparation. I mean, I've mentored a sort of army of younger people, mainly young women, directors actually, over the course of the years. And... Um, I think if they've learned anything from me, it's, well, I hope they've learned. I think, I, I guess the two things they might say they've learned are um, very, that very, very high levels of organisation are required uh, to do this job. Um, and also that very, very high levels of preparation um, always pay off. There's no such thing really as doing too much preparation, I don't think. I think that... Uh it really shows through in the quality of what you get often is how much you have prepped and how much you're ready for it, but also how natural you are and how kind of authoritative you are. And I was reading in, in prep for this, I was reading that you, um, that you say people need to feel that you respect them, but not necessarily that you are their friend. Mm. I think that's right. I think that's, I don't like, um, I don't like to, um, fool people into thinking that I am there as their friend. I, I'm friendly and I may very well in lot, many instances um, have very friendly and warm feelings towards them. But I think, um, I think it's, an, it's an ethical thing. I think there has to be clear water between 
me and my contributors so that they don't forget that, that I'm there to make a film. Um, they're not there to just completely spill their guts as though I was their best friend. So I, for me, that's an ethical thing to, to, it's not about maintaining a distance. It's about, as I say, it's about having clear water and so that, that they are aware that it is a professional relationship so that they don't then feel, you know, that I've sort of conned them into giving away something that they would normally give away to a friend, but they wouldn't give away to a filmmaker. So I think it's important that they know that I'm there as a filmmaker. And to what extent does arriving with a film crew, and you, you shoot with a film crew, you don't self-shoot, and in fact, you've been using often the same film crew for, for many years, to what extent does that sort of set up a formality to the proceedings that is also serious and gets people to really um, take the whole process serious and open up? Because it seems to me you do get a lot from the structure of your interviews. Um, I think, I mean, I've worked with the same cameraman, Johan Perry, amazing um, DOP. I've worked, I've actually lost count. We, we tried on this latest film we just finished. We were trying, we were flying to Swedish Lapland and we were trying to remember as we checked in our bags, we were sitting there getting bored and we were trying to remember how many films we made together and, and we actually couldn't count them all. But I think it's, I think it's something like 26 films or something. Um, and he uh, often, well, in recent years has worked with the same cameraman, um, the same, sorry, the same recordist, uh, Andy Hoare. Um, and before that I worked with another recordist for many, many years. So these are, my crew are people that I know very well and work with over years. Um, and I think the significance of that is that, again, and it's a real luxury and a privilege to be given a budget, which means you can afford to do that. Um, but I think the advantage is, I actually have self-shot my own film. I made a film about the artist Sarah Lucas, which was the very first ever hour-long film self-shot on DV um, on British television that I made. Um, and I know that people who shoot in that way say talk about there being an intimacy that they think that you can't get with a crew. So I have done it, and I and I certainly think that there's a real convenience and there's a real uh, and it's much cheaper to to do it yourself and just be able to hop in your car and whiz over to someone's house at eight o'clock in the evening and shoot an interview and come back and it's cost you nothing. Um, but I don't think it gives you it gives you greater convenience. I'm not sure it gives you greater intimacy in the sense that if I turn up with my camera crew um, and we are we we are all work very calmly together and we have a very good rapport um, and uh, Johan and Andy come in and they just bring a very benign safe atmosphere um, and I think that that um, atmosphere just makes people feel um, partly makes, they see that we've done it many, many times before and that's reassuring to them. Um, and it makes them trust the process and that helps them then trust me. So even though there are two large men in the room, you know, that doesn't get in the way in any way at all. And it, and it means that I'm very focused on what I'm doing and I'm not, you know, as I say, I have the luxury of I don't having, have to worry about whether my batteries are flat or whether my camera's tilting over as I speak or you know all the things you worry about like mad when you're shooting yourself. I want to play another clip and this one is I think a, a great example of, of getting people to open up and, a, and in this case it caused a, 
a lot of online chatter. This is from your series on money, and it's the episode about couples. And this is a clip uh, between Natalie and Dave. And I'm going to just run it now. Natalie works in a lawyer's office, and Dave is a research scientist at Manchester University doing biomedical research into arthritis. Dave is the primary breadwinner and earns £34,000 a year. Dave's kind of really into his career and that's his pride and, and joy in it in a kind of strange way. I mean, it's not just a job to him. He is immersed in science. He, his birthday is actually in a couple of weeks, but his mum has bought him a ticket Yep. to a science conference in Manchester for two days. Yep. And he goes on marches and... I he, would have done. Well, you would have gone on this yes. march recently, but um, he, but you have done that before, gone on marches and things like that. That was you? against the Iraq War. Because that stopped with the war. Yeah, that's not really sciencey. Yeah, but it's a nerd thing to do. Not really, it's <laughs> an activist thing. Dave's got a career and, and he's worked really hard for it, but... You know, his career is a means to an end. It's that's it, that's it. That's what he's there for. The love of the job, the career, the money is incidental to that, really. It's quite helpful, though. Well, yeah, it is quite helpful. But I mean, you know, it it is what it is, isn't it? You know, you couldn't, you wouldn't change career for the money. You wouldn't want to not work in science. No, you're right. Natalie obviously experiences that a shortage of money in this situation. Yes. Is there a shortage of money yes, from absolutely. your perspective? Yes. But Natalie, do you think Dave should retrain? Yeah, I do, yeah. What do you think he should retrain as? I don't know, an accountant or something or a lawyer. With his qualifications, it wouldn't take very much time. I work I've worked with lawyers for sixteen years and I know how much they can earn. And and let's say it's, you know, triple the amount that Dave earns now. I know that goes down well when I play that for my students. <laughs> and and I know that um Natalie found herself the target of, a, as you can imagine, of a lot of online uh, nastiness. She went on to write an article uh, for The Guardian about what it was like uh, being featured in this. But she, at the end of describing a very sort of unpleasant uh, reaction to people saying that, you know, that she's a harridan and Dave should be leaving her, uh, she said she doesn't actually regret participating in the film. Mm. No, I think that's right. And... Um... And I, I mean, I think that is right. And I think it's important that, um, you know, neither Dave nor Natalie had any criticism of me or of the process, even though they really did, were, did find themselves very exposed. And I think one of the things that happened um, at that time, that series was, went out in 2011, was it, it was, for me, it was the first time that, that the feedback loop between transmission and response had got so incredibly short. You know, I, I, when I, if you go back much earlier than that in my career, you know, when you're something transmitted, you might get a review in the paper. That would be your initial response. No social media, no nothing. And then, you know, a week and a half after transmission, you know, a handwritten letter addressed to the BBC might finally find its way to your desk and one of your contributors saying thank you very much or, you know, whatever. Um, and you didn't really hear from the public, you know, unless people ring in to complain, which they, they have very rarely done in my films. So there, there was very little feedback um, and, and such feedback as there was took a long time to sort of reach you. 
And suddenly in 2011, for the first time with me, the feedback loop was instant. You know, suddenly Twitter had become a thing and social media had become a thing and newspapers having um, comment sections under their reviews had become a thing. And suddenly it was all live. So that was a very, that, that was quite a shock to me when that happened. Um, and it was, it was fascinating. It was fascinating the way people reacted to Natalie. And as, as you know, Carol, because I've told you this before, but the extraordinary thing that happened was that she became the subject of all this criticism and opprobrium for her, her attitude to her poor benighted husband. And then one of the responses we had was from um, a wealthy philanthropist who got in contact with me to say that um, they wanted to fund Natalie and put her through law school. So she had a very, very happy um, outcome in the end. Um, and she was definitely robust enough to cope with it. But, um, but I, I was concerned. I remember when I first met them, I was concerned because I did, I did see that what, they were, that what she wanted to say was not necessarily going to be well received. But I think one of the things, um, so you have to, you know, you, I'm very, very aware always of my duty of care and very, very sure that people know what they're getting into, which is why it's, I think it's significant in the articles that her and Dave wrote that they didn't have a criticism because actually they had thought it through. Um, I think what's, what's really important about that clip in that film, there's lots of couples in that film, is that people want to talk about their lives and people want to give their testimony and people take their own lives very seriously and more than that people quite often if you ever have a two shot people like the fact that you they want to be in that situation because they want you as a filmmaker to sort of mediate and they they think that their point of view is the right point of view and they want to go on the telly because they want everyone to hear it and they feel it's a safe environment in which to do it because you are there as a filmmaker to sort of mediate. And I think that's what they both felt. I think Natalie felt that if she could finally say it in public, you know, maybe Dave would actually hear her and pay attention. And Dave probably felt that if he could finally say it in public, maybe she would kind of get off his back. That's exactly what it feels like. And is that at all similar to a therapy setting? Well, it is and it isn't. Um, I'm very aware that I am not a therapist and I don't have a training to be a therapist. And I, there are certain documentaries that I don't like where I think the documentary make, you know, does something quite dangerous, which is to kind of fancy themselves as a therapist. So I, I'm very careful not to do that because I don't have that training and I, that's a responsibility I don't want. But I think that um, what I think is true is that I wouldn't necessarily have the skills I have to talk to people in that way had I not been in therapy myself for a long time, which is different to imagining yourself to be a therapist. I want to uh, lead us into actually one, one other clip which is related to this and that it's uh, it's getting someone to open up about their, their, their personal life. And this was a film that was unexpectedly very popular, Walking with Dogs. Can you tell us a bit about Walking with Dogs and how that came to be? Yes, well, it is funny. It is probably one of my most popular films. And, and I'm, you know, it's a lovely film. So um, 
and I'm proud of it, but it, it, it does slightly pain me sometimes that I've done all these, inter you know, I've done all these arts films where I'd done the last ever interview with Marilyn French before she died. I did the last interview with artist Barry Flanagan. I did the last interview with the artist Patrick Caulfield. I mean, there's, there's a ton of really quite important archives that I've generated with very significant cultural figures. And then, and then when people meet me, they always want to talk to me about the pet film. So it kind of makes me laugh really. But, um, and when I was asked to do this, most, almost all the films I've done have been films um, that I've generated, that's come from ideas of my own and I've gone and got them commissioned. And this was one of the very rare films where I was approached um, by BBC Two and asked to do a film about dogs. And when I was asked to do it, as I say, because I'd, I'd done all these things on much grander topics, I, after I received that phone call, I did actually put the phone down and burst into tears. I just thought, I cannot believe after all the films I've made uh, on the scale of the projects I've taken on, I'm being asked to make a film about pets. Um, however, I didn't really make a film about pets because I don't really know anything about pets. Um, what I made a film about was a group of people, it was a very pure film in documentary terms, a single frame which is one part, which is Hampstead Heath, and I made a film about, really about the fact that people have, people's lives are difficult and people have a lot of tragedy and pain in their life, and within that context I was examining what the dog in their life, what the, what the role of the dog was in their life. Um, and in each case, uh, it, it represented something diff different, but in each case, all, all the contributors were dealing with something, um, as we all are, of course, in our lives, almost all the time, dealing with something very difficult. Okay, let's hear, let's hear a little snippet from the film. It's February, and despite a heavy snowfall, the dogs and their owners are still out in force. What is the name of your dog? Her name's Bluebell, but I call her Bella. And what kind of dog is she? She's a Weimarana. Most people pronounce it a Weimarana, but I say Weimarana. And is she a pedigree dog? Yes, yeah, she's a pedigree. Do you walk her on the heath every day, Julie? I walk her on the heath nearly every day. At least two to three hours I walk her. She thinks this is a little bit of Pembrokeshire. I lived there for 25 years and we had a big, big garden and pond. Um, yeah, it was really nice. My three children were there. And I had a lot of dogs there. I used to breed dogs. So the only thing I brought from my home was my dog. I left everything else. Jilly now lives in a homeless hostel, half a mile from Hampstead Heath. What happened, Jilly? What went wrong? My partner's business was he was struggling and I didn't know. And then um, I, I didn't help because I had depression for quite a few years and I didn't leave the house for five years. So, and then he just 
came home and says one of us have to leave. And um, he left and my whole world burst. I, I've been with Joseph since I was 23. He was, never thought he would ever leave me. I thought we were like two swans. Never thought he would leave me. I, I do still love him. I never will stop loving him. It's a very moving scene, and as you say, the film is about much more than, than owning dogs. Um, what's it like for you to have these quite intimate contacts with, with people in these, these interviews and then move on and uh, go on to other projects and have them out there in the world continuing to fight their demons? Um, I mean, people sometimes, you know, some of my contributors stay in touch with me. Um, and if I contact them, they're, they're always pleased to hear from me. Um, I hope they are. Um, I, I did hear from Jilly actually not that long ago because the film was repeated on the BBC. And, um, and so I, I, you know, whenever the films are repeated, I contact everybody to make sure they're okay and that they're happy with the film being re-shown. Um, and she has her own flat and you know her and she's well sadly her dog is her, her dog bella is no longer alive but she's got another dog now um and she's okay um i mean it's strange it's strange you know as a filmmaker when you've made such a lot of films and you've had so many people sort of populate your filmic life they they're all sort of present, you know, they're all, they're all in my brain somewhere. Well, I was watching last night and I recommend everyone to watch it and you're making it available, the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which is part of your, uh, another episode in the Money series. And you had all of these people trying to uh, get rich re relatively quickly. And you had this uh, pair of uh, a couple that were 18 and talking about where they're going to be in 10 years and how they're going to be millionaires. And, you had another woman too who'd, who'd spent a lot of money in these courses and was talking about where she'd be in 10 years, uh, which, and the film was made about 10 years ago. Do you ever think about returning? Oh, you sound, do you think I should be doing a follow-up, Carol? Um, I would love you to do a follow-up <laughs> and I can help. Because <laughs> in, in my class, when we show you your films, we always, that's what my students always want to know is, is what, where, what's happened, which is a great testimony to the, the empathy with which your films are, uh, made because it does make you care about the contributors. Well, it's an interesting thought. I mean, a lot of them warrant the follow-up, don't they? I've, I mean, I suppose in the same way, you know, everything's become product now, hasn't it? That's what's so depressing about broadcasting now. Everything's just sort of product. Um, and so, you know, I've always tried to come up with a new idea. You know, it never occurred. I've done Lefty Series 1. It never occurred to me to do Lefty Series 2, Series 3. But, of course, now that probably, you know, you'd be on Lefty Series 54 and you'd have sold it around the world. <laughs> so I've never thought in terms of product and business. I've always just thought in terms of, you know, moving on to something new and different that interests me. Um, so I've, I haven't ever really looked back. Um, did your thinking about product and business have to change when you left the BBC because you were in-house for many, many years at the BBC and relatively recently you became a freelancer? And did you, did you have to change how you thought about uh, getting projects commissioned? I mean, I haven't 
had to change yet in that I'm still, I've made um, three films since I left the BBC, one of which was feature length. And I, they've all just been um, commissioned on the strength of the idea. And, um, you know, I guess, you know, they're, they're films for BBC Two. And so I haven't had to think in commercial terms um, and I haven't had to turn all my ideas into sort of six part box sets you know I haven't had to do that and obviously there's a real skill to doing that um, but a lot of the a lot of the motivation for doing that is of course commercial. Um, Have things changed for you a lot in terms of how you go about it or you're still making films for the BBC? Yeah I mean all the films I'm, I'm in I I hate to make myself unpopular by saying this, but all the films I've made have been fully funded by the BBC and have continued to be so since I've left the BBC. So I, I mean that again, that's an incredibly lucky situation to be in, isn't it? Mm, it is. And and uh, you were also looked at with some wonder, I think, in the last years when you were still in-house because you were one of the few in-house doc, doc makers um, hanging on to your, your salary. I wanted to uh, bring up a point from that clip um, in your use of music. So we had the Stand By Me come at the beginning of it and music is a really strong element in your films and really important part of the storytelling. Can you talk us uh, through a little bit about your approach to finding the music for your film? Yes, I mean, actually that is one thing that I, I'm grief stricken about currently. Uh, in the last few years, um, something bad happened at the BBC where somebody, I don't know, a bean counter had the brilliant idea to renegotiate, renegotiate BBC's blanket agreements and actually um, decided to save the BBC a ton of money by excluding from the blanket agreement um, almost all music that is on a North American label, which includes, of course, pretty much all major British artists as well as all North American artists, um, as well as all sorts of other very prominent artists from around the world right. um, and it's devastating to me I know it's devastating to Adam Curtis as well um, and so actually a lot of the fun that I've had with music over the years it's not possible to do that anymore um, and it's a source of immense grief to me um, but when I was allowed to use commercial tracks and they were clearable um, and you didn't have to pay money for them um, because they were covered by a blanket agreement. So the BBC was paying, but you know, small amounts. Um, I would spend uh, vast amounts of time searching for tracks. And I remember, so I remember when I was making Inside Harley Street, which is a series about health attitudes or attitudes to health. I remember I listened to nearly 2000 tracks to try and find the music that I used in that series. And I think it, it, it's partly that I, I like the power of music emotionally. When it's a tune that you recognize it, you know, it, it goes straight into your bloodstream. And so I love the power of kind of popular music, that it acts, it, it's, a, it's a direct conduit to your feelings. So I love that. Um, and I, the other way that I've always used music um, is, so I've tried to use it in a witty way. So, or sometimes to, to say something about what I think, because I don't say what I think in my films, but quite often 
the choice of song will tell you what I think. So I, I use the lyrics from the songs to say what I think, but I don't actually say it myself. Um, so I've really had, yeah, I've really taken an, an enormous amount of pleasure in that over the years. But like I say, I think that's, that may have been outlawed now. We're going to get to the uh, final clip in a minute, but first I want to ask you about, um, you've got, uh, I think, an all-time record of Gerson nominations, seven Gerson nominations, no wins, always bridesmaid, never a bride. Is this painful? Um, well, I think, you know, I think you have to be bigger than that. I think that, um, I think you have, I think we all know that, the awards system is a bit of a crapshoot. Everybody knows that. Um, and so at the end of the day, it is a little bit painful, but, um, but I think what I really feel more than anything else, of course it would be lovely to win some awards, but um, I think what I feel more than anything else each time is that to earn the right to make another film is really, you know, is, is really what's important to me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm only really happy when I'm in production. So that's the, that's the right I need to earn each time, the right to continue. Um, and for as long as I can earn the right to continue, I think the rest is sort of gravy, really. Do you think that the industry treats women directors differently than men? Um, well, I think, you know, I've worked with lots of amazing men in my career. Um, I've had some wonderful executive producers. I've got a wonderful camera crew. You know, I've had... Um, my teams are often actually predominantly female, I must say. Um, my, you know, the, the production teams. But, um, so I don't... I, I, it's certainly not... The men I've worked with have always been great to me and you know someone like Patrick Holland's BBC Two you know is I'm thinking about women directors though in terms of women directors I think there's no question that I, what I'm saying is sort of on a personal level in terms of personal relationships I have no complaints but I think that if you actually look statistically across the board at how um, the kind of the kind of gigs that women directors are offered the the extent to which they're celebrated the extent to which they're thought of when um, big important subjects come up. I think, you know, again, and I can't complain because I, I've been offered some very thorny subjects to make films about that are certainly not women's topics. Uh, you know, Northern Ireland, um, the film I've just made about Carl Beach, these are not women's topics at all. They're, they're very, very difficult uh, sort of current affairs topics really. Um, but I think there's no question if you look across the board that it is difficult for women and bizarrely it has got worse over the course of my working life and I think that that's in documentary specifically I think that is partly because uh, in recent years there has been a privileging of a certain kind of story um, that involves that's often observational and involves being embedded and being away um, and in terms of awards and validation it's often about being in a war zone or you know so it, it's not just about they're treating women directors differently. You have to you have to go a step back from that, and the commissioners would have to think: what is it about the kinds of films we are commissioning that um, it are in some way um, 
leaving women slightly out in the cold. So it, I don't think, I think it, it's, I think it's a combination of things. And I, so I think it's not, um, it's not a simple, and the same goes for, um, I think for people of color directing that it's not just about, oh, well, are they given the same opportunity? It's that are the films that, that the broadcasters are wanting somehow inherently excluding those directors? A few minutes ago, you mentioned you were only happy uh, when you're making a film. I was reading in an interview that we'll put also the link to, I think it was the Sheffield uh, Masterclass on interviewing, but you were talking about how your anxiety drives your creative process and how much anxiety you bring to every film from the moment it starts to when it goes out. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to live with that and for that actually to be sort of your definition of being fulfilled and happy <laughs> your twist your twisted definition i remember being really cross actually i think that was richard mesa where all these all these directors had to interview one another at sheffield and and richard mesa sprung that question on me about anxiety and i felt a bit pissed off because i sort of thought I did feel pissed off. I thought he was sort of trying to make out to the audience that I was sort of this kind of neurotic Jew. And I remember being very fed up and then thinking, well, screw that. I'll just answer it honestly and, and be honest about the fact that creativity for me and for a lot of people, creativity does generate um, anxiety. You know, the creative process is also an anxious process. So I talked very honestly about that. I remember at the time. And afterwards sort of came off thinking, oh shit, you know, they, I, I really kind of, I did, that's not how I wanted to come across. It's not what I wanted to be talking about. And it was amazing because for the rest of my time in Sheffield on that, that particular year, so many people, actually mainly women, so many women just sort of um, sought me out in the bars, in the restaurants, you know, uh, in the hotel, people were just seeking me out to say thank you, thank you for saying that. Because obviously, when you're given, you know, a big old chunk of money to make something, um, and the thing that you make is going to be so visible, and everyone and anyone can see it and judge you, and people judge you harshly, you know, make no mistake. That is not a relaxing place to be. Um, mm. And even now, sometimes when I'm absolutely at the thorniest point in a film and, you know, and, and it, there are always still so many thorny moments, it doesn't get any easier. All films have their own difficulties. And sometimes when it's at its hardest, I do sometimes think, why, why, why do I put myself in this situation? Why don't I just go and be someone else's very diligent researcher? Why do I put myself in in the hot seat in this way, you know, because it is, it's frightening, you, you know, because if you make a mistake or you let yourself down or you don't do as good a job as you would like to do, which often is really out of your own control if it were to happen, um, everybody gets to see. So, you know, you have to, you have to be quite driven to do it, I think. And, and I think, if you're not worrying about, I mean, it would be a very strange person who put themselves in that situation and didn't worry about it. Well, exactly. And I think that um, 
you know, at least in the people that I've interviewed just for this podcast, like Dan Reed um, and Orlando, the, the, this anxiety is, is, is always present and what, what drives great directors. I want to turn to um, your, your most latest film, which was released, which was a $50 million art swindle. Let's have a look at the beginning of that film and then talk about it, because it seems to me this is this quite different type of, of film than, um, than those you've made in the past. if you can help and my name's Vanessa Engel I'm calling from London in relation yeah. to a documentary that I'm making about an art dealer called Michel Cohen if he surfaces anywhere they will find him I mean he's basically on the run for his entire life there were so many knowledgeable dealers that were trusting him for tremendous amounts of money he came in and he was trying to sell us a Picasso painting. And he would just basically sign for it and take the work of art. If you had to hazard a guess as to where he is now. Uruguay, uh, Panama, South America somewhere. You know, in all the movies, they all go to Mexico to hide out on the beach somewhere. I believe there was a contract put out on him and he's dead. Did you ever hear how much money Michelle stole? I would say it had to be 40 million or better. The total loss was a little bit over 50 million, I believe. I would say that every month or so, I will do a Google search, trying to find out information. And have you ever found anything? No. Can you tell me your name? Michel Cohen. What a great opening, Vanessa. I love this film and I love the jauntiness of this style. And can you talk a little bit about how this film came about? Because I think this is a this is a, a geezer you'd had your eyes on for some time. Yeah, no, that is true. I mean, it is very weird um, that I had spotted this story in 2001 when Michelle first went on the run. And I was, because I was making art films at the time. So it was sort of gossip in the art world at the time. And, and I remember thinking, God, an amazing story. And, and I did Google him. You know, whenever I whenever I finished a project and was thinking what 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 do I want to do next, I would Google him and sometimes in between. And so I was Googling him for however long it was, you know, the best part of 20 years. Um, and then um, and then Mark Bell at the BBC, um, who commissions art programmes at the BBC, um, got behind the project, which was very brave of him because at the time we hadn't found Michelle. 
but he thought it was just a great story about sort of venality of the, of the art world, whether or not we, we could tell the story, whether or not we found Michelle, whether or not we could tell it in the first person. Um, and that was a brave commission. Um, but then we found Michelle and, um, you know, and then it became feature length and it was, yeah, it was the most fun I've ever had making a film. And it's, it brought together, I suppose I really felt, I mean, I am very, very proud of this film because it brought together so many things. It was like, a re on the one hand, it was, a it was a hybrid because it was a sort of arts film in the sense that it drew on a lot of my um, knowledge and contacts in the art world, but it was an art, the story about the arts, but told very much in a documentary style. And it was such a thrill that I'd been wanting to make it for so many years. And it was such a huge thrill when, um, when we found, um, when Billy, my, my producer, Billy Shepherd, uh, she did all the detective work, but when we actually managed to, to find Michelle and I went to meet him. Um, and also I'm a French speaker and he was French. And so, you know, a lot of the music tracks are sort of um, music tracks that mean a lot to me going back to when I was in my teens and early twenties. Um, you know, my partner is an artist. I live with an artist. So it, what this film says about the art world is, is really deeply felt to me, you know, that a lot of the deals and a lot of the money making in the art world is kind of, um, you know, making art is not just a, a pure and beautiful thing. It says this can be a horrible commercial thing as well. Um, so, so many aspects of me and my life and what I'm interested in um, came together in this film. But it almost felt, uh, and it was so fun and we got to travel the world and I got to go, I would travel the world for a month, which I had not done since before I had my children. You know, I stayed home for 18 years, no more than that, until my, until my youngest son was 18. I didn't travel for work really for more than a few days at a time. So I, you know, having waited and waited all that time in order to be a, a good parent, I suddenly found myself, I had the freedom the freedom to, to go away. So in all sorts of ways, this film was um, an absolute joy for me to make. Well, and I, I, you can't see from the audio clip, but when you watch it, it's got this lovely construct right from the beginning of where you're telling the story using post-it notes and you're, because this is a, this is a mystery and you're tracking him down and much like uh, an, an edit will end up with a whole wall of post-it notes. This is what you did even right from the credits being written on them. And you often, it seems to me, have this a type of construct like that, um, including the, the film that you made about all the women murdered by their partners in a year in the UK, where you had a whole wall that you were looking at. And do you know from the beginning that these are the type of frameworks you're gonna lie upon films when you use them? Um, I do often think quite hard about I definitely think very hard about what my visual motifs are going to be. Um, and in the art swindle film, you know, there's a, there's a little pendant that's hung from the rearview mirror of the car, where whichever country we're in, you know, and I, I, it's got a little photo of Michelle in it. It's the man we're, we, you know, we, we're trying to discover. Um, and I made that, you know, that's me. I'm, I'm sitting looking at it here now. It's hanging in the notice board in my office, but, um, and I, you know, I went to the haberdashery shop and I bought the beads and I, uh, on eBay, I, 
I bought a little Chinese car pendant and then I sort of cannibalized it with my beads and my tassel and my photo of Michelle, which I went and got framed in a special frame that I found. Um, and that was because I wanted that as a motif. I knew I wanted that motif. Um, so of course, you know, you have to have thought that out in advance um, or it's not gonna happen. Um, and it involved a lot, just a little, you know, me sitting here with a needle and thread and some super glue. Um, and I think, um, I'm, yeah, I'm always, I'm always, sometimes they're the sort of graphic devices. I've worked for many years with a lovely graphic designer called Keith Haynes, and I always have a meeting with him quite early on in pre-production to talk through the kinds of things I'm thinking about and what his role will be in helping with those or whether there are things we need to be doing while we're filming. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm always uh, thinking of those ahead of time. But then when I start filming, um, Johan and I, you know, we're always foraging for pictures and it's as we start to forage for pictures that quite often other motifs will crop up. So there's a, there's a, in the Art Swindle film, there's that, uh, I don't even know what you call it, that inflatable man that you see. Yeah, like the Gumby type of. Yeah, that you would see outside a petrol station in the States. I mean, you don't really see them here. And they, they inflate and then they collapse and they inflate and they collapse. And, you know, I remember, I was absolutely beside myself when we spotted that, or I spotted that as we were driving along um, the freeway, because I just was like, I was just like, that's Michelle, that's, that is Michelle, you know. He, he's up and he's down and he's up and he's down. Um, and then we filmed him and that does become a motif in the film. So some of them, some, you know, some, some I plan in advance and, um, and others I find along the way. Well, thanks Vanessa. It's, it's, I found it a little bit daunting to try to cover such a rich career in a, in a reasonable amount of time. <laughs> Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to say? Um, yeah, I think we should talk in detail about the other 54 films we haven't made. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, I would really like to do that, but uh, I'll have to leave it to another time. Thanks so much for, for Thanks, being Carol. part of this. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks a lot, Thanks, then. Carol. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Doc House Conversations. I'd like to thank my colleague, Sean Parnell, who's been the tech and editing genius throughout this lockdown run. I hope that you will rate, review, and share this series with anyone who loves documentaries. See you soon.